really good stuff. This morning we are in our series. We are continuing our series uh, that we are calling Why We Love the Church. And we are talking about uh, all of the different reasons why we love the church. If you were with us last week, maybe if you weren't, uh, just a quick reminder. We talked last week about we love the church because of the history of the church. And as tainted as that can be, and as a lot of times people want to point back to the history of the church as reasons why we shouldn't love it, why it's actually a good thing. And also, too, even the parts that we screwed up, why we can still love it because we learn from it. And so we talked about that last week. This week we are talking about why we love the church. We love the church because of, wait for it, the people. We love the church because we love the people of the church. And now, we know, I, I, if I had told you before, that we were going to be preaching a sermon series on why we love the church, you probably could have guessed that one of the things we were going to talk about was the people. Because we know that when we say we love the church, we feel obligated that we should say, well, we love the church because we love the people. We would all say that, right? But at the same time, a lot of us would think, yeah, but do we really love the people? I mean, after all, aren't all the problems with the church trace back to the people? Like, isn't the problem with the church the fact that there are people in the church? Like, if you got rid of all the people in the church, wouldn't the church be a pretty awesome place? Like, you and I can all think of people that's like, man, if they weren't there, I would really like that church. And so, as we look at things like the history of the church, the theology of the church, things that people we often complain about, uh, about the shortcomings of the church, like the lack of love that the church shows to people, that it should be showing love to, right? That all can be traced back to the people. The people are the problem of the church. And, and usually when people are done with the church, it's because of the people, right? When we talk to them, when they say, a lot of times they don't say, I just can't stand the history of the church, I'm out of here, right? They don't say that. They say, it's the people. They're hypocritical, they're judgmental, they're short-tempered, they're cranky, they're ugly, whatever it is, we don't like the people, and so it's really tempting. It actually was really tempting. As I was preparing to talk about today, I could just stand up in front of you guys and for 45 minutes, actually I would do 35 because I don't want to preach as long as that. If I did, stood up here for 35 minutes and talked to you guys about all the ways that people in the church are bad, you would track with me the whole service. I'd probably get the most amens I've ever gotten. People would be nodding along. They'd be like, yes, preach it. And then I could get to the end after talking about all the ways that people let us down and they wrong us and they hurt us. And I could say, but God loves them and so we should love them. And we're like, oh yeah, we guess. And you'd walk out of here and you'd say, you know what? I love that sermon except for what he said right at the end. Everybody would say it and they would all agree. The truth is, every person sitting in here today has been hurt at one point or another by someone in the church. Is that right? We have all been hurt by people in the church. I don't want to be respectful of that. I'm not here to apologize on their behalf. That would be insincere. But I know, I, I with you, I identify with you. We have been hurt by people in the church. And so it seems hard a lot of times to say, we love the church because of the people. But there's good news. The good news is that as you look at the New Testament, the Bible agrees with us. The Bible is on our side. Actually, as you look at the letters in the New Testament, the early church apparently had a lot of people problems. 
If you look at Paul's letters and the letters that are written to those churches and Peter and John, it's people problems. I think Paul had to think at some point, man, if we could just get all these people out of the church, we'd have a really good thing. And yet, we see in spite of that realization, in spite of the reality of how people can let us down, the author of Hebrews, as he wrote to that group, saw fit to tell them this. He said, let's consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. So even the Bible admits that people, and particularly church people, followers of Jesus Christ, are not perfect. And yet it still says, the authors of those letters still say, but you're better together. How in the world does that make any sense? How in the world does it make any sense that by being with the people that hurt us, we're actually better? How do we hold intention how people are, but that scripture says we're better together? Maybe even a better question is, how does God use imperfect people for our good? How could God use people letting you down, people saying things about you, people doing the things that they shouldn't do and know they shouldn't do to you and against you, and yet somehow it's still for your good? That's what I want to talk about this morning. That's the question we want to answer. And so the way I want to do that is actually a little bit backwards, uh, perhaps. Uh, I want to start off by giving you the main point of the sermon, and that's dangerous. Because once I give you the main point, you could stop listening. Uh, you could stop listening, and when I quiz you later on this week when I see you and say, what was the sermon about, you would know. And you didn't listen to the last 30 minutes of the sermon because I told you the main point up front. But here's why I'm going to do it. Because I'm going to say it, and I'm banking some of you are not going to believe me. And then I want to spend the rest of the morning trying to convince you of why that is the truth. Okay? So, we're going to do that by looking at the life of Jacob. So, if you want to turn, we'll get there, uh, to Genesis chapter 32. We're going to be in chapter 32 and 33 there in Genesis and look uh, at a portion of Jacob's life. But here's the main point this morning that I want you to get. You aren't you without them. I believe wholeheartedly that one of the main things that we can take away from God's word, from scripture, is that we need other people in our life and without them, we are not who God created us to be. Your life and growth in Jesus is done around other people. Do you believe me? No? Good. We don't like that idea. We don't like the idea that to grow in Christ and be a better follower of Jesus that we need each other. We like to think it's a nice add-on. We also like to think that because of that, we can pick and choose who it is that we surround ourselves with. But what scripture says is God has put people in your path, in your life, and he has them there for a specific purpose, and you cannot be who he created you to be without them in your life as well. And as uncomfortable that, that is, as much as we might not like it, it's the truth. 
And what's even more the truth is, is that as much as we like to think, we'll say, okay, God, okay, you win. I need other people in my life, but it's the perfect people I need in my life, right? I need the people that are going to encourage me and lift me up and spur me on to good works and good deeds and all these things, right, that good Christians are supposed to do. Scripture says, no, you're going to have imperfect people in your life. You know what? That's a good thing. But how can that be a good thing? Well, it's a good thing because a lot of the times when you and I talk about having perfect people in our life, people that will spur us on, people that will agree with us. Perfect people, a lot of times in our minds and the way we talk about it and the way we work it out in life, perfect people mean, mainly means people like me. People that think the way I do, people that act the way I do, people that like the same things that I do. Here's the truth. God doesn't want more people like you. If he did, he would have created them. He's created them the way that they are to be different than you and to still be in your life for a very specific purpose because you need that in your life. In the life of Jacob, I believe, shows us that perfectly. Just if you don't know Jacob's life, I'll give you a quick summation to bring you up to speed on, on where we're at. Jacob, Jacob was born uh, the younger brother to Esau. And one way to sum up Jacob's life is, in Jacob's life, people were always his problem. People were always the reason why Jacob had issues. And if people could just get out of his way, if people could see his genius and how smart he was and how blessed he was and all these things, life would be really good. And and so Jacob's whole entire life, from the get-go, we're told he comes out and he's grasping at his brother's heel, is get out of my way and let me get mine. If, if God, if you would just get these people out of here, if you'd strip them away, if you'd remove the obstacle, then my life would be good. Know anybody like that? Jacob was this way. He was this way with his brother Esau. We're actually told that twice Jacob tries and does take Esau's birthright. And the second time he does it, it's so egregious, so deceitful that he involves his mother and his father in it. And Esau is just overcome with rage. Jacob actually has to run away because he's afraid Esau is going to kill him. So Jacob runs off and he, find, and he goes to live with his uncle Laban. And then his problem is that Jacob runs into people who are just like him. Laban is just like Jacob. He's a cheater. He's a swindler. He's always trying to take advantage of people. And that happens to Jacob. And so Jacob has these two main people in his life, Laban and Esau, and he's just thinking, God, these are my problems, and if you could just get these people out of my way, my life would be great. And there comes a time when Jacob has to flee Laban, things get so bad that he's forced back into being in relationship with his brother Esau, a relationship that he thought was done and dusted, and he'd never have to go back to again. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. As Jacob comes back into contact with Esau, what do we see about how God uses people in our life, imperfect people, and why, why is it a good thing? How can he do this? And so we're going to read there. Let's read Genesis 32, verses uh, 3 through 6, uh, first together. He says, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant, Lord Jacob, says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there until now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. 
When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Not really the message you want if you're Jacob, right? So as you read on there, we find out that Jacob goes into a frenzy. He's like, oh my goodness, he's coming. He's going to kill me. He's going to overthrow me. And so Jacob comes up with a plan. He divides everything that he has into groups, and he decides to send them out. So let's skip down to verse 16. It says, he put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to each of his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, Why do you belong, who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I'll pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. So what we see here is that Jacob has run into such a sticky situation. Uh, with, with Laban behind him and, and nowhere, he can't go back. Uh, he's forced to meet with Esau. And the only thing that he can think to do is to give up everything that he's worked for. Jacob has spent his entire life. Now, I'm, uh, I'm taking a little bit of liberty here, but just go with me for a second. Jacob has spent his entire life thinking that people were his problem. And if you've ever felt that way, you, like Jacob, were probably thinking, if I can get my life to such a place where I have enough money, enough power, enough influence, enough space, to where I don't need anyone anymore, I don't have to rely on anybody but me, that's when I'll have it made. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever thought, man, if I can just get to a place where I am self-reliant, that's when things in my life will be good, right? Jacob, I think, probably felt that way. And he had worked towards that, and God had actually blessed it. And yet here he comes, he's faced with coming face-to-face again with Esau. And so everything he's worked for, everything that to him says independence, says things the way I want it, says my way finally He gives it up. Everything that gives him strength and power is gone. Living in relationships with people will cost us. We will have to give up that which we cling to and love most if we are properly, the way God intended it, going to live knowing one another. And that's hard. Just take, for example, you can't do everything you want to do when you're around other people, right? Hopefully, at least. I mean, if you don't want to be a jerk, if you want to be a jerk, you can say whatever you want, do whatever you want. But for people that want to be thought of at least well, every idea that comes into your head when you're around other people, do you say all the time? Hopefully not. My mom does, but everybody else, no, right? Just by being around other people, you can't say everything you want to do. Just by being around other people, you can't do 
everything you want to do, right? And that's because one of the things that Jacob's life shows us that is a truth of our lives that maybe, and I know we don't like this, but it is true, is that people limit us. But that's a good thing. People put limits on our lives. People restrict us from maybe being able to do everything we would like to do all the time. But I'm telling you, that is a really good thing. Sounds weird to hear, right? Like some of you are like right now are like, oh man, this is uncomfortable. I, I don't know if I like the sound of like, how can he say that? How can he say that people limiting me, like not being able to be me and express myself because other people, like how is that a bad thing? And, and would God really want it that way? I can tell you if you're feeling that way, it's because you've been raised the way that I have. You've been raised in our culture and we've been raised on the idea that we have infinite freedom that we have unlimited possibilities. Have you ever been told or told someone you can be anything you want to be? Right? It's like the motto of every parent, right? And while it's a good thing that we can tell our kids this and, and that they can grow up and we can say, dream, you know, what would you like to be? What would you like to shape you? I'm sorry, I hate to crush your childhood dreams, but Scripture says you cannot be anything you want to be. You are not made that way. But we're told this, and we believe it, and we tell other people it. And so in that framework, with that idea that we are infinitely free, unlimited possibilities, then, and only then, does the goal of our life become eliminating anything that we feel that restricts us. Anything that might infringe on my freedom, anything that might not make me happy, I have not just the freedom, it is God-ordained, He condones it, He loves it when I strip it out of my life because God wants me to be free. So, Things like responsibility, personal commitments, authority. I don't like what they're saying. I think I'll just ignore it. And God's okay with me doing that. Why is it? Why do you think it is so many kids don't have parents? Because that kind of a commitment might infringe on my freedom. And I have the right to cut it out of my life if I want. Why is it that so many relationships, marriages end in divorce? It's because no longer does this make me happy and I am free to pursue that which makes me happy. I had a professor in uh, college, he was a poli-sci professor and we would talk about this idea of freedom and infinite freedom and unlimited possibilities. And um, it, it's, it's woven into our DNA as, as a culture, as, as a nation, right? Our, our Declaration of Independence, he would talk about this, our Declaration of Independence, right? And in the, in the first, like one of the greatest things like ever like written by human beings, like in the first few lines, it, it says, right, that all people have the right to what? Three things, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like we can all quote it. We all know it. And we've all been told it. 
And while there's probably debate on what the originators, what the authors of that document meant by the pursuit of happiness, we have our own ideas of what that means. Anything that just makes me happy, anything that gives me pleasure, no matter how fleeting that is, I can orient my entire life around that thing. And anything that gets in the way of that, I have the freedom to strip away. He would talk about that and then he would say, so this is how ridiculous that idea is, that you have infinite freedom. He'd say, because as a person, if it makes me happy, I have the right to swing my fist in the air all day long. He said, but the right to swing my fist ends where your nose begins. Because if one person has infinite freedom, then it infringes on the freedom of everyone else. Do you see how that works? This idea that we are limitless, this idea that that we don't have to answer to anyone else other than ourselves, it's ridiculous because there are other people. It's just a natural idea. He wasn't a Christian at, by any stretch of the imagination. And yet he knew, understood one of the truths of Scripture. And that is, you and I are made with limits. We are made with natural limits and we have been made intentionally that way. Just think back to the creation story. Some of the things we find in the creation story that we don't normally talk about. Things like, being hungry, needing sleep. These are things that were there before sin entered the equation. God put those there. Why? Because you are not an island unto yourself. You are not limitless. He put limits on your lives to remind you that there are things outside of you that you need, namely him. The first not good in scripture doesn't come up after sin enters the equation. It's before. It's when God looks at Adam and he sees Adam and Adam's alone and he says, it's not good that he's alone. He needs other people. Why? Because you are not made to be self-sufficient on your own. You were made to need God and you were made to need other people. And it's people. It's people that show us better than anything else what our natural limitations are. Maybe it's the reason we have such a problem with people. Maybe it's because when we're around people, we're reminded of all the things we can't do and all the things we would like to do and how they restrict us and how they hold us down in our mind and how, oh man, if I could just get them out of my way, how much better my life would be. The thing we often fail to recognize is though, is that if we were limitless, if we really could go 24-7 and didn't need sleep, if we could run all day and not get hungry, if God had looked at Adam and said, you know what, he's good on his own, what need would we ever have for God? Truthfully, just just. Reckon with yourself for a second. If, if you really had no needs in your life, how often do you really think you would talk to God? How often would you come to him in prayer if you were never hungry, never tired, never at the end of your rope, never had problems with people? 
Like people are the problem we talk, are the reason we talk to God, right? People show us our limits and we don't like it. But what we don't recognize is that it's our limits that make room for God's grace in our lives. It's when we realize we are no longer the lie we've been telling ourselves and that is self-sufficient. It's when we realize we need something bigger, something better, something beyond us. That there is a void in our life that we cannot fill. It's then and only then that the grace of God is able to come in and start not just filling that void, but overtaking the rest of our life. God uses people to limit us, and in limiting us, we find him. I like to think that my grandparents were like, normal grandparents. I think everybody thinks that about their grandparents, right? I don't know what normal grandparents look like, but mine were. Um, my, uh, my grandma was uh, just a, a kind, loving lady. She was actually, for uh, most of her life, um, she, was a, um, uh, she was a cook in an elementary school cafeteria. And, and she worked uh, back when uh, they didn't send you, they, they, sent you, they gave you the ingredients and you just had to, you had to make food for the kids. So she, um, actually when, when my grandma passed away, the people came to her funeral and talked about two things, like how good of a cook she was and even more than that though, how much because of the way she cooked food for them um, in the elementary school and then even came around and wanted them to eat and encouraged them to eat, how much they knew that she cared about them. And she would always talk about how important it was that she did just as important work as those teachers did because they needed a good meal and, and that sort of thing, right? Um, and, uh, and that she showed her love to them. I, actually, a few people even talked about how they just saw her as like almost a second mother because they just saw her every day and she was always there talking to them. My granddad was not that way. Um, and that's why I think that the normal. Usually it's the grandma that's nice and the granddad that you're scared of, right? Um, uh, my granddad was a, uh, a welder for the plumber and pipe fitters union, and so a hard job, and he was really good at it. Uh, my granddad had a hard life, and uh, he also came from a time and an age when uh, the way that men and husbands and fathers primarily showed that they loved uh, their family wasn't by... Uh, writing awesome Valentine's Day cards or saying I love you all the time. It was by going out, working hard, and providing for their family. That's the way that they said, I love you. And, um, and my granddad was really good at living that way. And um, I can remember as a kid actually uh, being kind of, kind of scared of my granddad. And my granddad, the thing was with him too, was that he did what he wanted to do. Like he was like the most stubborn person ever. And my wife constantly reminds me that I look just like him. And so um, the, uh, he, he golfed three times a week, at least three times a week. There was nothing that was going to get in the way of that. And he never talked to anybody about it. He just did it. He was always on his own time schedule. And if you didn't know his time schedule that he didn't tell you about, he got upset. Uh, he was impatient. He was rough. Um, he was opinionated. Um, didn't hardly ever have kind words to say about much. And uh, my grandma, just the opposite. I can remember uh, my family talking about um, if, uh, you know, who, who was going to, as they were aging, you know, who would have to take care of who. And I, I just remember the, the conversation that 
If my grandma was the one that needed to be cared for first, they were worried that she might last only two weeks. Because would he allow himself to be limited by what she needed? Would he give up golfing? Would, would, what, what would his care look like? Could he even cook? You know, things like that. They, they, they had no idea. Um, the worst case scenario happened. Uh, my grandma uh, uh, developed uh, Alzheimer's. And so um, the, I, I, think, I think we were all kind of worried that, you know, what would her care look like? Um, the thing that happened was probably one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Uh, my granddad changed. He became more patient, more caring, more soft-spoken. He, uh, uh, he virtually quit golfing, which he loved. Uh, it got to the point that when it got too hard for my grandma uh, to walk uh, just uh, their driveway because of some uh, just slightly uneven pavement, he would take her every day at the same time to Walmart so that they could walk around inside. Um, totally different person. We wondered, would he resent the fact that he was limited because of how much care she needed? What we saw was that that limitation provided a way for God's grace to fill his life and affect him in other ways that we never would have imagined. To such an extent that uh, a year or so after my granddad died, um, my dad felt like he needed to talk to him about Jesus, and he wasn't really a, a professed believer. It was kind of that age when, like, everybody went to church, and you're in the South and that sort of thing. But So he said, you know, Jay, I just got to ask you about Jesus. Would you like to talk about him? And I think it's because of how God had worked and softened my granddad through the limitation of caring for my grandma that my granddad said, you know what, I would. And he's with Jesus now. You can ask anyone that cares for a loved one, anyone that depends on them. And we look at that and we say, man, that must be hard. How much it requires of you, how much it limits you. You can't really be yourself. You can't really do what you want to do. How difficult is that? Anyone that cares for a loved one in that way, they will tell you 100%, I guarantee you, that it does not limit them. In fact, it has made them better. People will limit you, but it's in your limits where you find the grace of God. And it's there that the grace of God is allowed to work in your life in ways you never would have imagined. And just maybe the people that you think today that are restricting you, and if God could just get them out of your life, you would be so much better off. Just maybe they might be the biggest blessing that God has put in your life. As we go on in uh, Jacob's story, look there at verse 24. Starting there, it says, So Jacob was left alone. A man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life 
was spared. We said earlier, uh, Jacob's biggest challenges in life were people-related, right? If he could just get people out of his way, things would be great. But what we see here is that people had brought him to a place where he had exhausted all of his resources. And we might look at that and we might say, yeah, his problems were people. If he didn't have people there, he wouldn't have had to wrestle with God. He wouldn't have gone through this, you know, thing where his, you know, hip socket was touched and then he limped the rest of his life. But the truth is, is that when we are in that place, and we are in that place where the only place that we can turn to is God, that's exactly where we need to be. And so the beauty of Jacob's story is we see this. People push us. They push us closer to God. People will push you closer than God. You know, I don't know what your prayer life looks like. I, I, I don't know if it's thriving or if it's stalled out or if it's non-existent, but I can guarantee you this. Wherever you're at in talking to God, if there's one time in our life that we will talk to God, it's during struggles, Right? You might never talk to God on a daily basis, but you run into issues in your life, you run into hard things, you're going to start talking to God, a lot like Jacob was here. And I also guarantee you that a lot of the times that we quote-unquote wrestle with God is over the people in our life, right? Probably the majority of our prayers have to do with people. And so I kind of ask the question, God, wouldn't it just be easier if I didn't have to pray about hard people? Like, wouldn't it be easier if I could just focus on you and me, and it was just you and me, and my prayer life wasn't dominated how I have these people in my life that I need you to change their heart because they're not right, right? Right? Do you ever feel that way? Like, God, could we stop talking about other people and just talk about us? Wouldn't that just be easier? And the answer is, well, yeah, it would be. But the thing is, is that God knows what we really need. And what you and I really need is not a life without people causing us issues. That's not the concern. What you and I need is him. And we need the transformation that his life brings to ours. Look at Jacob. I know what that prayer was like. I've prayed this prayer. Jacob goes running to God because he's coming into contact face-to-face with Esau, right? And so I know that because I've prayed this. God, there's Esau. He's coming. I know what's going to happen. Please change his heart. Please do this. I've tried everything I can. Nothing's working. You're going to have to come in and change the situation. But notice what's talked about. Esau, in what we read, is never mentioned. It's all about Jacob. So I just want to warn you really quickly this morning, be careful. Be careful because your conversation with God about other people might actually end up being more about you. You might find that when you come to God to pray about the people in your life and what's going on, God might actually want to talk to you more about you. Might want to talk about what's going on in your heart, what it is that's fueling you, what it is that you're operating out of. Look at verse 30 there. Jacob says, I saw God face to face. Listen, as much as we like to talk about how imperfect other people are, we have to own the fact that we ourselves are not squeaky clean. 
And what we also need is the same thing that they need, and that's God's transforming touch on our lives. We need to come face-to-face with God because that's where real change happens. Real change in our life happens when we come into contact with God. Look at Scripture, and every time anybody comes even a bit face-to-face with God in their lives, Moses, when he catches a glimpse of God's glory, and he comes down, they're like, we can't even look at your face, man. Isaiah, when he sees God in the temple, anybody that came into contact and touched Jesus or was touched by Jesus in his ministry, that is where real change happens. And it happened here for Jacob. As Jacob was wanting to wrestle with God about Esau, God said, how about we wrestle about you? How about we talk about what you're like and what you're about? And that's what they did. He said, who are you? What's your name? And he said, Jacob, heel grasper. That's who I am. That's what I do. And what did God say? Not anymore, you don't. You're different. You're someone else. We need God's blessing and we need God's change in us. And a lot of times that happens because people will push us to God. That's a good thing. That's an amazing thing that God is able to use that for. Steve Janess says this. I love this quote. He says, I am the most sanctified person when I am by myself. What does that mean? When I'm on my own, I'm the most patient, caring, loving, understanding. I am the best husband when my wife is gone. I am amazing at it, right? We are so good to ourselves, are we not? It's that other people around us make us impatient. It's all their stuff, right? Deneff goes on to say later on after that, he says, our growth in Christ is worked out in the midst of people, not in spite of people. You cannot grow in Jesus the way that you are intended to. You are not able to lean into who God has made you to be without other people around you. They bring it out in you. They show it. People have a way of showing us our own faults and chasing us to God to talk to him about them. I've seen this in my own life in the relationships, particularly the big relationships, those, those like really big like relationship thresholds, right? Where, where, where they just, they, being around another person that intimately, like you see things about yourself you did not know. You see, I thought I was a pretty good person before I got married. And then I got married. And so many realizations, so many things that I realized. Like, I had no idea that I had been folding underwear wrong all those years. <laughs> Completely unbeknownst to me. Like, that, that there was a right way to begin with and that I was doing it wrong. No idea. 21 years of my life wasted folding underwear the wrong way. Marriage has a way of doing that. What's even worse is kids. Oh my gosh, kids. Kids are the mirror. Like the thing with marriage is you're with a totally different person. The thing with kids is you're fighting with yourself. (laughs) And you realize how much you hate yourself most of the time. Like, my goodness, why are you this way? Why am I this way? One of the things that kids have shown me, though, is, is, is so many times that when I get frustrated with my kids, when I, when I, when I kind of lash out at them, there's a lot of times God will stop me, and I'll realize that actually I'm not mad about what they're doing. I'm mad about something going on in my own life, and I'm frustrated with that. And man, when that happens, how I have to go and say, I got to talk to Jesus about this, and how selfish I am, and how much I 
put that on other people. The relationships in our life, they will chase us to God because we want to pray about them and God said, let's talk about you. And it shows things in us and God says, let's talk about you. And it's because of other people that we grow in Jesus Christ. God uses that for our good. How amazing is that? Let's wrap up with this. Genesis 33, we're gonna read verses one through 11. It's a lot, we'll get through it. Let's just talk about what happens when Jacob meets Esau. It says, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. And they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. And the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what is the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your faces like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that, is brought, that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. People forgive us, and we desperately need it. We can't get around the fact that we ourselves, we've wronged people and we need their forgiveness. Because I don't know if you know like I do, but when you've hurt somebody, when you've wronged somebody and it's a lot, a lot of times easier to just say, you know what, that relationship is damaged. We're just gonna move beyond that. That's a hurt in your life that you carry with you the rest of your life. And it's something that you might think it's forgotten and yet there's something that brings it back up and there you are, right back in that situation. And what's more, what we don't realize a lot of times is that those unmended hurts and unforgiven wrongdoings, they are things that drive us and influence us well beyond the time that it took place. They keep us out of certain relationships we should be in. They keep us out of situations that maybe God is calling us to. Not being forgiven or not forgiving distorts our perception of life, and it's not the way God intended you and I to live. And here's the amazing thing. This is why we love the church and we love the people of the church, because the church is the one group of people founded, written into its charter on forgiveness. See, we all are here because we believe we, in fact, know that we have life because of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, right? That is the reason we breathe. That is the reason we have any joy. That's the reason we have hope. That's the reason we have everything. And so if there is one group of people that is going to be willing to forgive you when you screw up and you're going to screw up, it's the people of the church, I get it. They don't sometimes, but don't get hung up on that. We need this. We need this in our life, and we also need to be able to give it because to forgive is to practice and extend what gives us life. 
And when we don't do that, when we cheat ourselves, when we jettison relationships because we can't find it in us to forgive or we don't want to admit that we need forgiveness, then we are actually denying the very thing that grants us our very existence. To say that forgiveness is impossible is denying the very reason that you exist. Because I guarantee you, what you've done and what's been done to you does not compare to what God has forgiven you for. And to say, I can't do it, or they won't do it, you're saying that God is not God. We live in relationship with one another because one way or another, we're going to hurt people. I, I, I hate to say that. I hate to sound down, but it's, it's going to happen intentionally or unintentionally. We need to be around people that know like we do the power of forgiveness and the possibility of it. We need people to help us grow in the grace of receiving and extending forgiveness. And when we don't do that, when we pull ourselves away from people who do know that, who agree with us on what scripture says, we're actually stunting our own growth. The scripture actually says we're more like children at that point. I was in my office just a couple weeks ago, and I was toiling away, working really hard, and um, I get a text message, and it's from Ed. And it's, uh, it's a link, and I open it up, and it's a link to an Onion news article. Do you know what the Onion is? Um, it, it's a satirical news outlet. It's, it's not real. Um, it, basically, the Onion was fake news before fake news was a thing. Um, it, it's like real fake news. It, it's not real stuff. But it's, it's, it's funny because it's pretty much true. So he sends me this article. New study reveals most children unrepentant sociopaths. I, you can tell it was a busy day in the office. Um, it says, data shows that seemingly innocent children such as this one are not to be trusted. Um, I just want to read you a couple of things from it because the article is awesome. It says, a study published Monday in the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry has concluded that an estimated 98% of children under the age of 10 are remorseless sociopaths with little regard for anything other than their own egocentric interest and pleasures. Some of you are thinking, man, that sounds like my kids. And some of you are thinking, man, that sounds like me. Um, it goes on. It says, children will use any tool at their disposal to secure gratification. And as soon as the desire is fulfilled, be it some material want or simply an insatiable and narcissistic desire for validation, they quickly become bored and lose interest in their victims, all the while thinking only of satisfying whatever their next hedonistic craving might be. Mateo added that even when subjects were directly confronted with the consequences of their inexplicable behavior, they had little or no capacity for expressing guilt other than insincere utterances of sorry that we were usually coerced. Finally, they end with this, and this is the good part. It says, we've tried behavior modification therapies, but children actually learn from our techniques and become even more adept at manipulating others while concealing their shameless misanthropy. Sadly, the experience has taught us there is little hope for rehabilitation. Just look at the way adults act. <laughs> One of the things that separates children from adults is that adults can recognize the need to ask for forgiveness, and adults can extend it. When we separate ourselves because it's just too hard from the people around us, we are actually harming ourselves from growing into the people God has made us to be. When our life and relationships are centered in Jesus, then he will use people to grow us in his grace in life. We aren't ourselves when we aren't with each other.
So what do we do with this? And I'm way out of time. There's a thing going around, and it's affecting uh, my generation and younger. So if you're wondering how old are you, let's just say people under 40. And there are people that are older that this happens to, but man, I'm seeing it so much more and more in, in people my age. And it's the idea that finding yourself and getting in touch with who you are is the greatest thing you could ever do in your life. Have you heard this? Have you run into this? The idea that if, if I can just strip it all away, strip all the other people, all the other things, my job, all this stuff, and just find out who I am, man, then I'll have it made. Then I can live out my life and live it out the right way. Like we believe this so much that we actually can't even talk about like going on vacation without saying things like, you know what? I just need to get away for a little while and get in touch with me. Have you guys heard this? We believe it to such a degree that we actually think that it, 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 is, it is the greatest thing when people are willing to cut things out of their lives all in the name of, I just need some me time. I need to get in touch with my inner self. Usually it's just a veiled excuse for us to go home and binge on Netflix, but, but we do it. Look, I'm going to tell you right now, we are the most introspective and self-aware generation in the most introspective and self-aware culture in the world. The last thing, I'm, just, I'm pleading with you, the last thing you need is to be more self-aware. You already know you. What you need to be more aware of is Jesus Christ. You need to be more aware of who he is and what he's up to and what he says about you than what you say about you. And what scripture says, what Jacob's life points out to us is he's going to do that in the midst of people and especially people that limit you, people that push you, and people that forgive you. And by cutting yourself out of that community, you are killing yourself all in the name of living better. Don't do it. To the rest of us, you might not be there. You might not struggle with this. But we have to stop acting like and resting on that people should be in church merely out of obligation. Well, the Bible says they should be here, so by golly, they should just be here. We have to answer the call to be people where others can find the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. That we are people that love one another enough to tell them God's truth. Not our truth, God's truth. And that after we've told them that truth, that we give them the grace, the space, the time to lean into and grow in what it is God is doing in their life. Those are two things, radical things, that they will not find out there that they must find here with us. We must be people that ourselves are willing to be limited by others, pushed closer to God by others, and ultimately forgiven and forgiving towards others. So maybe this morning, maybe you're struggling with someone right now in your life. I can tell you, it may not seem like it today, but God is going to bless that. But let me just ask you to do this thing for me. Make sure you're talking to him about it more than you're talking to other people. Wrestle with God over it, not people that see it your way. 
Allow him to ask you hard questions about yourself. Who are you? What is your name? And go from there. Maybe this morning you don't feel like you have anyone in your life, that you are searching for those relationships that provide meaning and that can help you grow in Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you right now, this is the place to find them. Not necessarily Oregon City Evangelical. It's a great place to find them, but I'm talking about the church, the people of God. That is where you want to be because the reason we're together is because of Jesus Christ. And there is no better reason to be together and no better group of people to associate than the people that say, we want to follow that guy and we want to be about what he was about and we want to do what he did. This is the place to find that. Maybe you have a whole group of people. Maybe you're in a really good place this morning where you have a whole group of people that you lean on and you love, and that's amazing. That is awesome. Praise God for that. But maybe, just maybe, it's time to reach out to those around you that you don't know yet and maybe become someone's answer to prayer. Maybe sharing that same love and support and limitation maybe in your life that you cherish so much. We love the church because it's full of people. And as imperfect as they may be sometimes, we know that God uses them perfectly to limit, push, and forgive us, especially when we need it most. Let's pray. Father, your love to work good in our lives is amazing. Thank you so much for the people that you've placed in our lives. People, people even sometimes that we may look at and we think that they're, they're obstacles, they're, they're roadblocks to our happiness, our freedom. Lord, would, would they push us closer to you? And Lord, by, by coming closer to you, would, would, would we grow more in you and would we be able to answer the call to love one another as you have loved us? Thank you for that love. Thank you that we can be people that are identified by the love of Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I think the church is an easy target a lot of times because it's easy for us to look at the imperfections of people and say, see, it's not real. And, and I think in a sermon like this, it's easy to walk away and say, wow, like maybe we shouldn't expect that much from one another. And I just want to say, I think the church is the greatest group of people in the world, and I expect a lot of it. The amazing thing is, is that even when our imperfections show, and even when we fall short, and even when we screw up, God can still use that for our good, and he still uses us, and we should not throw it all away just because of a few bad experiences. God is using that in your life to draw you closer to him. Let him use it. Let him grow you. Go in peace this week to love and serve the Lord, knowing that he's growing you, loving one another, living in community together. We'll see you guys next week. Have a great week.